Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, if somehow, someway we could understand how great your love is, how high and how wide and how deep and how long your love is and how you are for us, it would change everything. We would no longer be anxious. We would no longer feel like we have to perform for you to earn your love. We could actually just relax in your love. Relax in your unconditional grace and your unconditional mercy. Lord, I pray that we would have an aha moment today. That something that would be said would spark something inside our soul that would realize how much you love us. And Lord, that we could relax and enjoy the relationship that you offer to us. Lord, please, your will be done in this moment. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to welcome everybody here today and also everybody who's online. This past week was Easter week, and a lot of exciting things happened as a result of that. We kind of put a compilation video together to kind of show you some of the things that we think are worthy of celebrating of. So take a look at this. God's love is the greatest kind of love there is, and the greatest example of his love was shown through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. On Good Friday, over 10,400 people from across the globe took part in a special online service to remember what Jesus went through for each of us. More than 5,000 people across six campuses experienced Jesus' journey to Easter Sunday, giving us all a new appreciation for the days leading up to the day that changed human history forever. On Easter weekend, 138 people went public with their decision to follow Jesus by getting baptized, while tens of thousands experienced God's greater love online and on TV. And those that have experienced God's greater love can't help but show that love to others in return. Motivated by a greater love, the people of Sagebrush donated 14,587 pounds of food to help feed the hungry in their communities. But God's greater love isn't isolated locally. Sagebrushers from all across the United States banded together to provide over 22,000 meals to feed my starving children. That's enough food to feed 61 people for an entire year. Love like this has the power to change lives. Jesus is making an impact from major cities and rural communities in the heart of the southwestern United States to the hearts of people in Belize and around the world. God's love is greater. Isn't that great news? That's so good stuff. Seems like every week I get a letter from somebody in some little remote part of New Mexico or someplace around the world thanking us for what we're trying to do with our stream and for our television stuff. It's, it's just very exciting to see how the message of Jesus is spreading. Now, you know that we were praying that we would see about 150,000 people either stream or watch on TV our Easter service. And we didn't put, able to put the numbers in as to how many people got to watch us on Easter uh, because we didn't get the Arbitron ratings in in time when the video was being produced. Uh, but I'll have you know that we didn't have 150,000 people tune in. We had 290,000 people tune in. So once again... You might be new to the Sagebrush family. We're just glad that you're a part, and we're glad that you're tuning in. We're glad that you're participating. We hope that this has been helpful 
uh, to you. We're starting a brand new series called Greater Than, and today we're talking about the fact that God's love is greater than anything we've ever dreamed or ever imagined. Now, when I was a little boy, I loved to play baseball. That was kind of my sport. I absolutely loved the game. Here's a picture of me and my brother playing a little baseball. Uh, we were on different teams because my brother was two and a half years older than me. He's the one standing up. I'm the one kneeling down there in the picture. Uh, my dad had to alternate each year. One year he'd coach my brother's team, and the next year he'd coach my team. And, and being able to play for my dad was a real treat. My dad was a great encourager. He was an absolute great coach. He gone sportsman of the year several years in a row. He was always encouraging us right down that old alley, rock em fire. He'd say stuff like that from the dugout. You just wanted to play well for him. Now, I don't know if you know this about me or not, but I am a highly competitive person. Highly competitive. For the last 24 years, I have beat my wife and my kids in just about every sport known and available to man. I don't let anybody win. If you beat me, you have earned the victory. I've beat my kids. It started all the way back in Candyland. They call me King Candy. That's my nickname right there. And then shoots and ladders. Nobody could come up and down those ladders faster than I could, I tell you what. And then you got games like, you know, I trashed them in tennis and I beat them in basketball. And Uno... Well, that's my nickname because I am number one. Do you understand what I'm saying right now? I am a highly competitive person. Well, a few years ago, we bought this little game to play in the backyard, and my family was all together, and we're playing it. It's where you throw a bean bag into a hole. I think they call it cornhole. I don't know why they call it cornhole. Corn's got nothing to do with it. But you throw these little bean bags in these little holes. And so I beat my youngest daughter, and I beat my middle daughter, and I beat my oldest daughter, and I beat my wife. I beat them all once, twice, three times. Third time around, I'm playing against my oldest daughter once again, and somehow, some way, God must have intervened, but in triple overtime, she beat me. Well, I was not happy about the fact that she had beat me, and I certainly wasn't happy about the fact in her reaction, because she raised her arms like she had just won an Olympic gold medal. She said, I won, I won, I won, and trying to take the steam out of her just a little bit for her stupid victory of a beanbag toss game, I said, this is a, this is a beanbag toss. Oh, well, you beat your, your old man throwing a beanbag. That's not even a real sport right there. You know what she said to me? She looked at me and she said, I'll take it. I'll take it. I've been beat down for 24 years and I finally have a victory. She's in therapy now. My oldest daughter's also pregnant. How do, you, how do you like that? Isn't that crazy? Yeah. <laughs> Gets married in the summer and doesn't want to wait at all, and all of a sudden, I'm going I'm to be a grandpa now. So the, the, the question is, is, uh, is was my grandchild going to call me? And uh, pretty much whatever they decide, I think, is what I'm going to be called. But I like Grand Todd because I'm grand and I'm Todd. So Grand Todd and the mere fact that my oldest daughter hates the name Grand Todd, so I'm for sure going to be called Grand Todd for that reason. Well, I am a highly, highly competitive person. So here I'm on my dad's baseball team. I don't want to let my dad down. I don't want to let my team down. Well, one of the things you need to know about baseball is that not every time you get up to the plate to swing the bat do you get a hit. Sometimes you actually strike out. And I struck out quite a bit. And every time I struck out, I'm embarrassed to say this, but I was the kind of kid who would kind of drag his bat behind him after he struck out and sit at the end of the bench and have his big bottom lip out and start crying a little bit because I let my team down. I let my dad down. Well, my dad was a little bit embarrassed by the way that I was acting. He kind of saw me as a poor sport because probably that's what I was. And... Uh, he pulled me aside one day at, at, at the house after we'd had a bad game. I think I'd struck out two or three times, did the same thing again. And my dad said, hey, son, let me ask you a question. He said, who's your favorite baseball player of all time? 
And I said, well, Babe Ruth, the babe, he's the, he's the best ever. And my dad said, did you know that Babe Ruth struck out more times than he got a hit? And I'll never forget what I said. I was about eight, nine years old. I said, not the babe, Dad. Not the babe. He said, yes, son, even the babe. I said, but, Dad, I just feel like I let you down every time. I just feel like every time I let the team down when I strike out. And I'll never forget what my dad said to me. It's been over 40 years. He said, son, there's nothing you can do that would ever cause me to think less of you, to cause me to believe that you're less than. You know, son, I love you no matter what, no matter if you strike out or if you get a hit. My love for you is not based upon whether you can hit the ball or not. You are my son. I had a pretty good dad, didn't I? We got a pretty good heavenly father as well. And so we're going to look at a passage of Scripture today. It's one of my favorite passages of Scripture. And I'm going to do my very best to try to describe for you the love of God. Even though it's so high and so wide and so long and so deep that you'll never be able to fathom it. I'm just hoping that somehow, some way, you'll get a glimpse of how much he loves you and how much he cares for you. Now, if you brought your Bible today, it's found in Romans chapter 8. We're going to start with verse 31. If you're on your phone and you're looking up the scriptures, make sure you highlight this one. It's a great passage of scripture. And if you're here and you didn't bring a phone and you didn't bring a Bible, the scriptures will be up on the screen. All right, let's look at it. Romans 8, 31. It says this. If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, I want you to think about that first phrase for just a second. If God is for us. This past week, how many times did you think that God was for you? Did you have that thought? Because if you're anything like me, you didn't have that thought at all. Remember we talked about this a few weeks ago? The thoughts that run through our minds when it comes to our relationship with God are thoughts like this. God's disappointed with me. God wants to wash his hands of me. God's shaking his head at me. God's not proud of me. God's not for me. We never have this thought that God is for us, that God believes in us, that God sees things greater than ourselves. And if we could just have that thought, it would change everything, wouldn't it? If you could just walk around this next week and say, God's for me. God's for me in every way, in every situation. God is for me. This next week, you might find yourself at your job, and you might find yourself in over your head. Maybe you're walking into a meeting with your boss. Maybe you're working on a project. You're like, I don't know what I'm going to do. Can you remember this one truth? God is for you. Some of you kids are going to be having tests this next week, and these tests are getting more and more difficult as the semester comes to an end, and these tests are going to be the summation of your grade. And you're a little stressed out. You're a little anxious. Would you remember this this next week, that God is for you? Some of you parents, you're putting off that conversation, that hard conversation that you have to have with your teenager. Can I just let you know God is for you? Once again, your kids are fighting. Once again, you're so sick of it. You're like, you got to be kidding me right now. You're so exhausted. You're so overwhelmed. Never forget, God is for you. God is for your marriage. God is for your future. God is for that dream that he put inside of you. He's for that dream becoming a reality because God is for you. God is for you making the greatest impact you can for the kingdom of God and for the things of God. And yet we have all these thoughts that run around in our mind that God is disappointed, that God is angry, that God is frustrated with us. You've probably had this happen to you where you've thought to yourself that your past is so ugly that it can never be forgiven, right? 
God can forgive that person. God can forgive that person. But for what I did, God can't forgive me. But the Bible says in Romans 8.1 that there therefore is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because God is for you. You've probably said to yourself, I'm a loser and I'm never ever going to change. But what does the Bible say? 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. God is for you. Maybe you've heard it said that there's no hope for someone like you. But the Bible says in Jeremiah 29, 11, For surely I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans for your welfare and not to harm you, but to give you a future with hope. Why does God care about your life? Because he is for you in every way that you can conceive. Let me give you another one. You say you can't do anything right, but the Bible says that you can do everything through Christ who gives you strength. Maybe you've heard this one. You're, oh, you're only give up in the end. What does the Bible say? Surely God is my help. Isn't that good? God is my help. The Lord is the one who will sustain me. Maybe you've thought to yourself, God will abandon me like everybody else has. But what does the Bible say? Jesus speaking here. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. God is for you. God is fiercely loyal to you. Years ago, I was working at this church, and I wasn't getting paid a whole lot of money, about 150 bucks a week, and working about 30 hours, I'm making about five bucks an hour, a little bit more than minimum wage was at the time. And I, was, I already had my master's degree, and that's what I was getting paid serving there. And uh, I couldn't afford anything. I couldn't afford an apartment. I couldn't, I couldn't afford shoes. I, I couldn't afford anything. So my, my mom and my dad were so gracious. They let me stay living in their house, and, and they bought me clothes, and, and they got me birthday gifts. And, and, and one year, I, I, I got some new shoes, new tennis shoes. And I was so excited for these shoes. They're only really the thing that I really wanted for my birthday, and they were $60, $70. They were, which in today's money would be about $150. It was a really nice pair of shoes. And I, I wore those shoes everywhere that I went. Well, my parents went to the same church that I did, and, and I'm serving there, and I've got these nice shoes on. And Somebody in the church thought my shoes were too nice. Now, now why someone would look at my shoes and think, we're paying this kid too much money because he's got such a nice pair of shoes, without maybe even thinking that maybe his mom and dad, or, or how about this, why are you even looking at my shoes in the first place, you know? But he had shoe envy, I guess, for some reason I, I don't really understand. Preachers and sneakers, you look it up, it's a thing, you know, so... Uh, so here, here he comes up, and he, and he goes to my dad. And it's right before worship service, out in the foyer, right before the, the service was supposed to begin. And he pulled my, my dad aside, and he said, I think our church is paying your son too much money. Do you see his nice shoes? Now, my dad was, was a Christian. He loved the Lord. But sometimes his Christianity didn't come out of his mouth. You know, uh, sometimes he said things he, sh you know, should, should, shouldn't say. And so this made my dad really mad because somebody was attacking his son. And nobody attacks his son. Nobody 
attacks his family. So I'll never forget, I'm standing out there, and the guy's talking about how expensive my shoes are. And my dad's like, yeah, I know, I paid for them. And my dad, he didn't cuss, which was still shocking to me to this day, because normally in this situation, he would have. But because we were by the worship center where God lives, <laughs> he used every substitute cuss word I've ever heard in one sentence. It was quite an impressive thing to see. And chewed that guy up one side down the other. And I never felt more loved by my dad than in that moment in time. You mess with my son. You mess with me. Now, now that's the way God is about you. You've asked him into your life. He's forgiven you of your sin. He's made you a son or a daughter. You're a prince or a princess. And when somebody messes with you... God says, well, they've messed with me too. That's how fiercely loyal God is. Because look at that first phrase. If God is for us, and then it asks the question, who can be against us? So what's the answer to that one? Who can be against us? Well, the obvious answer is everybody. Isn't that true? I mean, he's not saying if God's for you, it doesn't matter. You know, he says, who can be against you? Well, I can give you a list. Your wife can be against you. Your husband can be against you. Your kids can be against you. Your parents can be against you. Your classmates can be against you. Your coworkers can be against you. Anybody feeling paranoid right now? I always feel like somebody's watching me. Right? I, I think this is what he's trying to say. He's saying, listen, if, if I'm for you, don't worry about that. If I'm for you, you and me together will always be the majority. You stay on my plan, you stay on my page, you stay with me. I am for you. Don't worry about what they do to you. Don't worry about what they say to you. Don't worry about all the ways in which they come against you. Because even when they do evil against you, even when they bring bad things to your house, I'll change it for something good. I have this amazing ability, God says, to turn that which is evil, turn that which is bad into something that's beautiful. Isn't that what he says just a couple of verses earlier? In Romans chapter 8, verse 28, says, We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. God says, don't sweat it. I'm for you. Yeah, I know there's people against you. But we'll even take that and we'll make something beautiful out of those ashes. I'm for you. I'm fiercely loyal to you. Kyle Eidelman shares a story in one of his books about a guy who would, uh, became an alcoholic. And he had destroyed his life, just lost everything. Lost his wife, lost his kids, lost his livelihood, just, just lost it all. And finally, when he hits rock bottom, he realizes the air of his ways. And he comes to his senses and he turns his life over to Jesus Christ. So he starts going to Alcoholics Anonymous. And they have steps that you take through the Alcoholics Anonymous program. And you got to that step where you have to make amends. Well, the only way you can make amends is to admit to what you've done and the damage that you brought along the way. So he calls his dad. Dad lives in another state, calls his dad on the phone, says, hey, dad, you know, I've, I've hurt my wife. I've hurt my kids. I've, I've hurt you. I, I've just made a complete mess of my life. And this next week at the uh, AA meeting, I, I've got to stand up and I've got to share all the damage that I've done. And, and, I, and I'm not looking forward to it. It's going to be really hard. It's going to be really difficult. The dad said, you do fine, son. You'll do fine. Well, they hung up the phone. What the son didn't know was that the dad immediately bought a ticket to be there for that meeting. So his dad shows up 
son is absolutely blown away. And he thinks, this is great, this is wonderful, my dad's here. And then he thinks, oh no, my dad's here. Because one of the people he needs to apologize to is to the damage that he's done to his dad. So it's his turn to speak, and so he stands up and he shares about the damage he's done to his family and the damage he's done to his wife and how he's lost everything and how he's hurt his dad. He's just weeping, he's just crying the entire time as he's getting one sentence after another out. And finally he gets done. And he sits down, and he's just looking down at the floor. And the dad immediately stands up. And he says, look at me. And their son leans up and looks at his dad. And he, then he says to everybody in the room, look at me. And every one of those alcoholics looked at that dad. And he said, I want you to know that I've never been more proud of my son than I am right now. And then he looked right at his son, and he said, son, there's nothing that would ever stop me from ever loving you. No matter what. And the man writes that it was an epiphany. It was one of those moments that changed the trajectory of his life. Because he began to believe that maybe God could love him if his dad could love him like that. That maybe, just maybe, he could trust in the unconditional love of God. Because he had seen so overwhelmingly the unconditional love of his dad. And yet we still question it. We still wonder about the love of God. And is his love great enough? And is his love unconditional? And can he love somebody like me? And, and, and God looks at us and says, what more do I have to do for you? Look at the next verse, verse 32. It says, he didn't spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, give us all things? Paul's saying, listen, you, you, you question the love of God, how much more does he have to do? He sacrificed his own son. You say, well, how does that show me that God loves me? Well, can I talk to the parents for a second? There's not a parent in this room that would do the same thing that God did. Not, not, not a one of you would, would allow your child to suffer for sinners. If you saw your child in pain or suffering, what, what would you do, parent? You would intervene. You would, you would say, that's, that's got to stop. How, how, how many times do you think I've prayed for my kids when they're in physical agony? I mean, Cammie's getting ready to have her fourth back surgery. Because number three didn't work either. Kid constantly walks around in pain. Do you think I haven't begged God to give it to me? Watching your child suffer. Watching your child be in pain day after day. Do you think as a parent that you wouldn't say, give that suffering to me? I'll take that pain. Because the pain of watching them suffer is far greater than suffering for them. Do you understand how much God loves you? That he allowed his son to suffer. That means God got the front row seat. That means God watched them make fun of him and laugh at him and spit at him and mock him. The God the Father was the one who watched them beat him beyond recognition. God the Father was the one who watched him be tied to a post and beaten with a cat of nine tails. God the Father watched him pick up the cross and take it to the place of the skull, Golgotha. God the Father listened as his son cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It would have been much easier for God the Father to say, I'll take it, spare my son. But he shows the depths of his love for us by allowing his son. Whose heart do you think was broken on that day? Who do you think endured the most pain on that day? 
And yet we still question the love of God. We question the faithfulness of God. And why? Because we question it based upon our circumstances. We say, if God's such a great God of love, if he really cares about me, then why did he allow this to happen in my life? There was this guy, his name's Greg Boyd. He's a pastor. His dad's name is Ed Boyd. He wrote a book called Letters to the Critic. It's a, it's a compilation of letters that he and his dad exchanged back and forth, back and forth. Greg's a pastor. Ed, his dad, is an atheist. He doesn't believe in God. Do you know why he doesn't believe in God? Because when Greg was a little boy, Greg's mom passed away. Ed's wife passed away. And he blamed God for it. He said, if God is such a good, loving God, then explain to me why in the world did he let your mother die? And you talk to most people, when they walk away from the faith, when they walk away from God, it's not because they have some theological question. It's not because they you know, can't quite figure out whether the Bible is inaccurate and errant and infallible. It's not that kind of stuff. It's the mere fact that something tragic happened in their life and they blame God because they believe he could intervene and he could have stopped it. And they don't believe that a good, loving God who would sit back and allow that to happen really cares about them. You, you talk to people, they're going to tell you, my son died, my grandma died, my aunt died. Some tragedy happened, and they walked away from God. Because they can't seem to equate in their minds the two things. So the, the book is a compilation of letters going back and forth and back and forth between the son and the dad. At one point, this is what the dad wrote. He said, okay, Greg, if God is so good and so loving, then why do you allow your mom to die when you were just a kid? I mean, I understand if God decided to turn a deaf ear to the prayers of a sinner, like an adult like me, but why didn't God hear your prayers? Why wouldn't he hear the prayers of a little child? Greg wrote back. He said, you know what, Dad, that's a great question. It's one I've wrestled with a lot, especially in college. One particular class, I remember we were sitting there talking about the Holocaust, the Jewish people and their plight and all, about the, and all that they went through. I walked out of the parking lot, out of the school, and I just looked up to the sky and I said in a loud, angry voice these words, the only God that I can believe in is one that knows firsthand what it's like to be a Jewish child buried alive. He knows what it's like to be a Jewish mother watching her child be buried. And then he wrote this, Dad, that's when it hit me. That's exactly the kind of God that Christianity proclaims. There's no other belief that does this. Only the gospel, the good news of Jesus, dares to proclaim that God enters smack dab into the middle of the hell that we created. Only the gospel, the good news of Jesus, dares to proclaim that God was born a baby in a bloody stable. He lived a life befriending prostitutes and lepers that no one else would befriend. He suffered firsthand the hellish death that is nightmarish in human existence. Then he goes on and says, Ed, I don't know why. I don't know why. I don't know why the pain. I don't know why the suffering. But I do know this. I know that God was with us. That God was with mom, that God was with you, that God was with me. He enters into our world. He enters into our pain. He suffers with us. Suffers for us. Maybe you've heard the name Johnny Erickson Tata before. She had an accident in a pool when she was a, a, a teenager. Left her a quadriplegic. Last few decades, she's been a quadriplegic. Anybody understands pain and suffering and having questions about why God does the things that he does or allows the things that he does, uh, Johnny Erickson Tata would have, would have a, a pretty good understanding of that. This is, this is what she wrote in one of her books. 
She says, God does not give advice. He doesn't, does he? He doesn't give us reasons or answers. He gives us one better. He gives himself. God wrote a book on suffering and called it Jesus. That's why God is good. He's good because he gives himself. Psalm 56 verse 8, David writes these words. You've seen me tossing and turning through the night. You've collected all my tears and you've preserved them in your bottle. You have recorded every one of them in your book. We have a God who literally goes to the pain with us. Who collects every tear you've ever shed in vials. And will make it up to you for all of eternity. Not because he has to, but because he wants to. And according to verse 34, you know what he's doing right now for you? He's praying for you. He's interceding on your behalf. He's praying for your courage. He's praying for your boldness. He's praying for your strength. He's praying that you don't give up. He's praying that you'll keep holding on to him with white knuckle intensity. That you won't measure his love by the circumstances of your life, but that you might measure his love by the expanse of the cross. And so what's Paul's conclusion to all of this? It's verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Verse 37. No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Because of what Jesus did for us. Because the Holy Spirit lives inside of us. We don't face anything alone. I don't face anything this next week alone. You don't face anything this next week alone. God is for you, and he didn't bring you this far to let you fall now. Look at verse 38, 39. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels or demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing will separate me from his love. Not hardship, not trial, not death, not persecution. Nothing will separate his love from me. Stories told about a young boy in a small town. His parents passed away, left him as an orphan. Nobody in the small town wanted him. A man finally came forward and said he can live with me. Over the course of the next few months and years, the man deeply loved the boy. And everywhere he went, he called the boy his son. A few years goes by, and there's a terrible fire at the man's house. While he slept, he woke up to the blazes. He thought his son, or the boy, was already out of the house. When he got outside, he realized that he wasn't out there and realized that he was still inside. So with no thought to himself, what's the, what's the man do? He runs back into the house, badly burns his hands, finds the boy under the bed, grabs him, takes him out of the house, but he severely damaged his hands, scarred his hands up from the burns. Well, news of what the man did to save the boy went in the paper, and that paper picked up another paper and got into the big paper, and it wasn't too long that a far and distant relative read the story and thought, well, we need to go get this boy. That was our, our, daughter's, our, our, our daughter's son. And so they, they went to go and, and get the child. But the man wanted the child to stay with him because he loved that child as his own. So they forced a judge to determine who would have custody over the child, the distant relatives who never had anything to do with him or the man who had had him living in his home. The judge brought the man before him first and, and he said, do you have any paperwork? 
you know, legal documentation that says that you adopted this child. The man said, no, I, I don't have anything. He said, then how can I know as the judge that you'll care for the child, that you'll love the child, that you will provide for the child no matter what? And the man stood there. He didn't say a word. He just showed him his scarred hands. And the judge ruled, and the man with the scarred hands kept his son. How much does God love you? Look at his hands. He is for you. He's not against you. He loves you. And if you want to know how wide and how deep and how long and how high the love of God is, just look at his hands. He did all that for you. Let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, for those of us who have pushed you away time and time again, for those of us who have never allowed your love to overwhelm us, for those of us who are still trying to perform because we think we've got to earn your love, for those of us who think we're too far gone, God, I pray today we would understand that you're a God who loves because you are love and that you love us fiercely and that your love endures and it never fails and that nothing, nothing can separate us from your love. Not our biggest sin, not our greatest moment of rebellion, not death, not life, not the angels or the demons. Nothing will be able to separate us from the love that you have for us in Christ Jesus. And I pray, God, that we would, we would embrace it. That we would let your love so flow over us. That this next week, everywhere we go, we would just think, I have a God who loves me. He is for me in every possible way, in every possible scenario. My God is for me. Who can be against me? Give us strength, Lord. Overwhelm us with your love. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.